the ultimate goal of what I call the American democracy movement is to redraw the lines between democracy and oligarchy, fascism, autocracy, technocracy, all the kind of enemies of more power to more people in more ways, the people that believe only some people should participate in power. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Pete Davis, a writer and civic entrepreneur who's co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network. That network organizes policy support for the next generation of leaders working to deepen democracy in state houses across America. We had a good conversation about Peter's career, which includes a startup called Commonplace, which was a online town bulletin for local community engagement, and even a company called Getaway that designs and rents tiny houses. He's a very interesting guy. You should listen. So after my sponsor, my interview with Pete Davis of the Democracy Policy Network. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Pete, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yep. I'm Pete Davis. I am a writer and civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. So that's not a complete biography. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Tell me a little about your family and educational path. Okay. Actually, I am from Falls Church, Virginia. I am coming to you live right now from Falls Church, Virginia. I grew up there. I went to school, kindergarten through senior year here in the local school, George Mason High School, it was called back then. I kind of was born into the progressive movement. My mom is from a long line of Democratic committee members. Her grandfather and her father met because they were both on the Riverside, Illinois Democratic Committee. And my grandma was kind of a big Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt fan. But my mom instilled that in me from a young age. And then my dad was a radical anthropologist. So he was involved in the indigenous rights and empowerment movements from the 60s onward. So kind of was baked in that when I was growing up. Went to Harvard College and went to Harvard Law School with a stint working on a community building website. And part of my stint in the middle working in the Ralph Nader universe on labor issues. And since law school, I've been working on the Democracy Policy Network, which is our effort to raise up state policy that deepens democracy. I wrote a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing, which is kind of my opening gambit of what is the one message we need to hear to get going in the right direction as a country. And I'm currently working on a film about community in America 
that's hopefully coming out this coming year. Well, so you're pretty idle in general, it sounds like. <laughs> too, too, too much going on. <laughs> <laughs> what did you study at Harvard College? I majored in government, so which is their equivalent of political science. Right. What was the thing from that major that you still think about? Yeah. Most government majors and poli-sci majors, a lot of the professors were focused on the kind of meso level of politics. So like presidential systems versus parliamentary systems or the thermostatic nature of midterm elections or something like that. And I was like not interested in that at all. You know, I'm kind of interested in it, but relatively not interested in it at all. And I was actually interested on one level more concrete and one level more abstract than this. And those were the two teachers that affected me the most at Harvard. So one level more concrete was I was really into the part of politics, which some might call the social foundations of politics and democracy. So the great, this is who we're making partially this documentary about is Robert Putnam, the guy who wrote Bowling Alone, who said, you know, just as important as it is to study Congress and the Supreme Court and constitutions, you should also study Kiwanis clubs and bowling leagues and neighborhood networks. And so I was very interested in that part of politics, the social networks, the community groups. And then on the slightly more abstract level, I was very into and still am this philosopher, Roberto Unger, a Brazilian-American philosopher, who I would describe him as a successor to John Dewey in theorizing, what do we mean when we say democracy? The shallow version of democracy is, oh, we elect our leaders in elections. The deeper version of democracy that John Dewey talked about and that Unger, I think, even goes beyond Dewey to expand upon much, much more broadly and simply is Democracy is about extending more power to more people in more ways. It's about equipping and empowering and securing people to participate in power. And it's about opening up institutions for the participation of those people in co-creating them. That got me very into kind of theories of visions of where we should go as a country if we care about fighting for a deeper democracy. I actually had Robert Putnam's daughter, who's also a professor on the show, and she's interested in some of the same things. I don't know if you've run across her. Laura Putnam, she's doing amazing work out of Pennsylvania on a lot of work on kind of what was this kind of civic rejuvenation among progressives after the Trump election, especially among suburban women, um, which is kind of one of the areas in the last 10 years where there's actually more civic engagement and what can we learn from them. So it's very interesting. What was this community building website you referenced? Yeah, I started this, co-founded this uh, website called Commonplace. um, And it was a social network for your community, like for your local community. And it was about place-based kind of platform networking. And we had it in 10 towns and it actually worked. It was a place where you could go like, I lost my cat or I need to borrow a ladder all the way to let's start a new civic group to fight city hall or something. It, kind of competed with Nextdoor, and Nextdoor is kind of the lingering major place-based social network in America, like alongside Craigslist, I guess, but much less socially networked in Craigslist. But it had a totally different vision than Nextdoor, and it's one of my great tragedies of my kind of professional life that place-based 
networking went the direction of Nextdoor did, which is kind of focusing on private security, focusing on the community as kind of like a consumer product for you as an individual to protect your interests as an individual, as opposed to having place-based social networking that is about inviting you to be part of something bigger than yourself, to not just be about neighborhood individual small ball things like I lost my cat and I need to borrow a ladder, but also inviting you to grander things like what are the civic groups in our town? What are the events that are coming up? And having kind of sovereignty over that platform on a local level, which next door is kind of the opposite. It's a giant Silicon Valley thing. It's running national ads. It's running large scale moderation and, and structuring over it. That was what I worked on. And it, and it worked for a while, but eventually uh, we had to shut down because we weren't sustainable. Do you think that there was a version of what you were conceiving that could have found its place. Is there something about that business model of Nextdoor and the more commercial focus that gave them competitive advantage, unfortunately? Or do you think that like, if you had another run at it, you could... Yeah, no, I totally, this is kind of my lost revolution. Um, uh, You know, if I ever have space to do this again, I want to do it again. I definitely, definitely think, and if you're listening to this out there right now, you should do this. Um, I, this is what I think needs to happen. Basically, there needs to be someone working on a software kernel. That is what this is basically, but you upload it like WordPress onto your own server, basically, so that there's local sovereignty to the thing. And you have a civic group in town run it, maybe the library, maybe the like local chamber of commerce or something like that, maybe the city itself. But sometimes there's problems when you have the official municipality do it. And, you know, the way we structured it is we were considering calling it the bulletin, which is basically you get people signed up and the way most of them experience it is one bulletin email every day. But then if you click into it and want to post or want to reply or want to write private messages to people, there's a site that kind of filters into that neighborhood bulletin. And so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is it should be structured and laid on top of the town itself, like the civic community itself. It should be, as Robert Putnam likes to call it, an alloy between the real world community and the online community. So a lot of local-based, community-based social networks go wrong because they put you at the center of it. And they say, here's events happening within 50 miles of you. But we actually need to say, you have to join something that has a local moderator that has more than just neighbor to neighbor, but it has the whole civic infrastructure in there. I think it could work. I think there was a guest I had who had something in that space. He'd been at MIT and had moved to UMass Amherst. Ethan Zuckerman, have you run across? He's very cool. Yeah, he's one of the great civic tech folks. Yeah. So I I don't know where he is on that, but I remember him mentioning a project, something like that, maybe not quite. There's interesting things like, you know, what's interesting about subreddits is subreddits are true communities, whereas Twitter is not a community. It's a feed. The way that Twitter shows you things is by who you as an individual choose to follow. So everyone's Twitter feed is different, whereas everyone's Reddit is the same. And I think local place-based community has to go that way, which is you join something just like you join a civic group. And then I also think this is the thing about Nextdoor, you know, and this kind of connects to the philosophy of it all. 
Zygmunt Bauman, this philosopher that I'm into, Polish philosopher, recently died. He wrote about how too much of shallow democracy has become like an RV park. This is what he means by it. You pull in your private experience, your private RV. You hook it up to this minimal public space, which is like, okay, we're all going to be here. And at least the electric and the water is hooked up. And then there's kind of a rundown headquarters at the center where one guy who's the night watchman who has the keys to like fixing the electric and the water are there. And everyone just comes to the public space. The public space is uninvested in. Everyone might leave one day. The real action is going on in your private space. But you have a little bit of public space, which is like the electricity and the water. And then when the electricity and the water doesn't work, you like slam on the door of the person running the thing and go fix my electricity and water. And he says like public space becomes like a complaint board for, you know, our private personal complaints. Or you become the gadget for the the private entity that's taking your data that you're uploading to them and makes money. Totally. Like we'll just solve the problem for you. You never have to deal with anyone. And that's what, you know, next door too often becomes. It becomes, I'm mad. There's someone in our neighborhood in my next door, you know, in my town. All it is, is some cashier at giant foods was mean to me. And I'm like, this is not what public space is. Public space (laughs) is not a complaint board for your gripes and, you know, security camera footage. It's supposed to be a place that's a place of opportunity for public shared dreams where we come together and think about things bigger than ourselves. That is, you know, self-interest rightly understood. You know, it's not just selflessness, but it's a mixture of your private dreams, ideals, interests, and desires with others coming together into a mix of your private with shared. And uh, that's what I hope the future of civic tech can do. Well, that's uh, what I like about asking you about commonplace and related things is I'm getting a real sense of you from it. And I think other people are as well. If you were going to say a thing or two about your your association with the Ralph Nader stuff that you mentioned before law school, just briefly, what 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 did you take from that? Ralph Nader, among people who are under 60, is like the most misunderstood person in American politics. The stuff you know, like the book by its cover for young people of what they know about Ralph Nader is they know 2000. They think he's just this environmentalist sometimes, even though that's not his original thing either, though he is a very good environmentalist as well. Often he's pitched as like this kind of gadfly outsider who's super radical or something like that, kind of like a hippie's ideal person or something. But it's totally wrong. And this is what you discover when you're in the Nativeverse. They said at the end, there's someone who says at the end of um, um, this documentary on him, An Unreasonable Man, which is a great documentary on his life and work. He's the guy who earnestly believes in America more than anyone else. <laughs> you know, He's like, he's not an anti-institutionalist. He's a total institutionalist. He's a guy who like believes in the rule of law. He's a guy who believes in markets. He's a guy who believes in patriotism. He's a guy who believes in conservative virtue building. And, you know, his whole shtick is like, what would happen if I actually believed in all the things that we say we believe in? And that's what he kind of instills in you is like, if you want to be the ultra earnest civic Marines, he's the guy for you. And, and that's what I experienced when I was there. It was like, basically, it was this wonderful experience of training under this person that 
it's a line of his that he says often. He says, I take seriously everyone's civic significance. And so he sits you down when you're like 22 years old and he says, you could take down Walmart. I was assigned to Walmart and labor power and the minimum wage and things like that. And he's like, I want you to read everything about Walmart and we're going to, in the next five years, take down Walmart and raise the minimum wage all across the country. And then he really makes you believe that. And then through that power of that belief in our civic significance, it gives you civic superpowers to kind of go out there and try to make it happen. And, you know, you shoot for the moon and you land among the stars. You know, we didn't fully change the Walmart poverty wage regime during the few years I was with him, but we got a higher minimum wage. We helped get a higher minimum wage passed in DC. We helped kind of support the insurgent fight for 15. We got some presidential candidates to commit to higher minimum wage. And, you know, it was wonderful working under him. And, it was kind of like an experience of being a latter day Nader's Raider. And for those listeners who don't know, a fun fact I like sharing is like half of all major law school, like prominent law schools is classes of like 1969 and 1970 applied to work for him. And he had like (laughs) hundreds of people working on like all these different civic causes. And it was like this amazing moment in American history that has resulted in helping pass OSHA and the Freedom of Information Act and Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the update to the Upton Sinclair Meat Act. And the reason we have heart defibrillators on airplanes, the reason that when a truck backs up and it goes beep, 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 that's called the Nader Bell. The fact we have the word ombudsman in America is because he brought that here from Sweden. All these different things, it's kind of sprinkling across the American institutional landscape, things that he created. Why law school? And what happened to you there that you end up proposing a lot of new ideas for law school and, and giving a speech there that's been seen many times. And what's what's the story there? Yeah, you know, I went to law school because I was kind of, um, you know, I don't, I never wanted to be a lawyer and I still don't really want to be a lawyer. So it might have not been the right decision for me. I wanted to go because I was told by two of my mentors, Ralph and um, Roberto Unger, that like law was one of the professions where if you have dreams of reforming the institutional landscape of the U.S., it's one of the effective professions at doing that. Nader used to put it as law is the grand central station of professions that touches every other profession. You know, there's chicken law and boat law and AI law and, you know, housing law, if you care about any health law, you know. And then Unger used to say, you know, the language of institutional power in America is law and economics. So pick one, you know, if you want to kind of reform the institutional landscape of America. As a kind of a small d democratic spirited person, I think every profession and every calling in America is a place to change America. But if you kind of want to focus specifically on policy, it's a good place to go. That's why I decided to go in the end. The first day I walked in there, I I had the benefit of, um, because of my experience with Nader and Unger, I was not wooed by the mysticism, the almost religious mysticism put around the law that makes you want to respect all the jurists or something that they try to instill in you. And so that allowed me to kind of from day one, look at it with a skeptical eye. I still to this day, am completely dumbfounded by the total bizarre mysticism that is around the law today when it's so clearly not the case. 
I'm a good believing Catholic, but I sometimes call myself a legal atheist in that I don't believe in the God of the law. I sometimes feel like the emperor has no clothes or like Martin Luther staring at something when I'm looking at the law because I'm listening to these people who are like talking as if like believing that the law, there's a science to the law or something when really it's just the historical happenstance of how institutions came to be and different judges that were appointed at different times. And so I, I kind of tried to be one of the people kind of raging against that to try to break the ice a bit. So go to the the graduation speech that you end up there. What's the circumstance around that? And- yeah. So I got to give the graduation speech to the university and you can't say that without like some elaboration. It's a speech contest. So uh-huh. I submitted a speech. Definitely was not based on grades because I, <laughs> I was one of the lowest grade people at law school. So it wasn't that. And I don't know. If, uh, it wasn't like a vote. It was a contest of giving your a version of your speech or the idea for your speech written and performed. Um, and so I won the contest for grad students and was able to give it. And you know, a graduation speech is an interesting challenge because it's a very weird format because it's like five minutes. What is the most important thing you think you can say to people your age in this moment right now? You know, the reason I gave the theme of the speech that I gave um, was because I felt like, you know, we live in a kind of hopeless time. We live in a really dark time. There's a sense that community is in decline. There's a sense that institutions are corrupted and rusty. There's a sense that our political problems are insurmountable, growing climate change and economic inequality and kind of techno dystopianism. A lot of things that people had turned to hoping to solve these things of these hopes have been dashed. And so that was the first thing, which is like, we're living in this dark time. And I want to say, what is the first step out of that dark time? Like, what is the one thing that an individual and or society as a whole could take to get us out of that, that I could get across in five minutes without doing a laundry list of causes? And it hit me that the people that were walking us out of this darkness to the light all had one thing in common, which was they were what I came to call long haul heroes. They were people who ignored the advice of keeping your options open and instead decided to commit themselves in the long run to a cause, a person, a community, an institution, a craft, a place. And so I gave the speech on rejecting the call to keep your options open, rejecting the call of hoping things would happen fast, and instead joining a counterculture of commitment of people who take the radical act of closing doors and forgoing options for the sake of working at something for a long time, which is how all change happens. Um, And that's a hopeful story because it's a non-naive story because it's saying change doesn't happen in a year, but it's a hopeful story because it says a lot of change can happen in 30 years and a good amount of change can happen in 10 years. And I'm just a completely firm believer in that. I think there's a challenge, and I'm curious about your reflection on this, to a person of that age in that choice, if they haven't developed it over their first 20 to 25 years, what if they don't have a cause or craft or something to be committed to? What would you say to them then? 
Yeah, this is a funny thing kind of connected to my personal interactions with Nader. You know, one of the funny things that he did with these Nader's Raiders, these young people that would come into his office, is he would kind of like assign them something. (laughs) He'd go, vaguely, what are you into? And they're like, oh, economy or health or, you know, international stuff or whatever. So he went like totally random. But then he'd be like, you should work on the SEC. You should work on mine regulation. You should work on this. And you see with all these stories good amount of these people, not all of them, but a good amount of them are still working on that thing 40 years later. And the experience was if you just go deep on something, it'll be so marvelous. So filling you with purpose and community and depth that if you can just attach people, if we can have more of these institutions of attachment that just say, I know if you were choosing among things, you wouldn't choose this, but just do it. Not if they totally wouldn't choose it, but if they're like vaguely, I don't even know how to make this commitment. Just do it. Then all the magic of feeling like it was the right choice happens upon you. And that was part of my me- my message, which was we way, way, way overestimate the amount that the initial choice has on the satisfaction we have in the eventual choice and way, way, way underestimate the decision to follow through with that choice and allow the purpose and rewiring of your sense of meaning that comes with fully diving into something to allow the community that grows up around you that comes with fully diving into something and to allow the mastery and depth, you know, both knowledgeable mastery, like just craft skills and expert knowledge to the spiritual mastery of just like feeling at home in a thing that you've been doing for a long time. That is what we find joyful. And I have a really simple way to do this. You don't have to take my word for it. Think retrospectively on the things in your life that feel the best or that you've had the most impact. Usually what they all have in common is not, oh, I just chose the most amazing thing. They usually all have in common that they're the thing that you've been doing for a long time and you've let it kind of take over you. I think about from the most mundane things like my high school friends that we have inside jokes off of saying one sound to the most grand things, which is I've been reading Robert Putnam books for 15 years now. So now when people want to talk about community, I can talk about it off the cuff and it feels great. That's the challenge of that. Makes a lot of sense to me. There's a standard post Harvard law path or one or two of them. What was yours? Yeah, I actually, I wrote a book while I was there at school called Our Bicentennial Crisis, um, uh, the State of the Public Interest Mission at Harvard Law School. And it was about how there was a standard path. And it was kind of an anthropological study of how does it push a bunch of idealists coming into Harvard Law School into the standard path, which is corporate law, um, and which I like to call corporate interest law. I wasn't going to take that. I would be a real hypocrite after writing a book about that. And so I knew I was going to work on the cause. I discovered at law school, you know, being a hand-to-hand combat lawyer is just not, I I do not have the skill set for it. I do not have the temperament for it. It is not meant to be. I don't have a regret of going to law school because I met my wife there. And so that was worth the entirety of the three years and the studying for the LSAT and the student loans I'm still paying off. By the way, that's my same feeling about my PhD program, which both my wife and I are ABD, but we met there. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's well, that's all that matters. You know, um, That's way more important than any, any uh, piece of paper or things like that. So I knew I wanted to go adjacent to law. So I really care about kind of civics policy. And so my main thing I've been doing that is kind of my long-term project is this thing called the Democracy Policy Network, which is basically 
you know, when we say we have a vision for a deeper democracy in the United States, every Democratic Party politician is talking about, you know, democracy, 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 protect democracy, secure democracy. But when you actually open it up and you say, show me what democracy looks like, like the old chant says, we need concrete institutions that actually bolster democracy. What are the concrete institutions that actually expand more power to more people in more ways, that actually open up institutional power to more people in more ways, that actually strengthens citizens and minds and bodies and communities, that actually opens up our government, opens up our economy, opens up our culture. And so I wanted to kind of do that work of that down payment on that vision for a deeper democracy by gathering, packaging, organizing, and amplifying the concrete policies that actually do this. And so that's what we do every day with Deepen, the Democracy Policy Network, which is write up these policy kits and host briefings on these policies that you can implement in your own city and state to deepen democracy. Where would you fit your group in politically? Ideologically, are you like progressive? Are you, do you try to avoid labels like that? Like, how do you fit? Yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, every movement is trying to redraw the lines around its own definitions. You're not playing the hardest game you can play if you're just trying to join a side of a current dividing line. The winner is the one who sets the divide and sets the language that we're all doing. And so the ultimate goal of what I call the American democracy movement is to redraw the lines between democracy and oligarchy, fascism, autocracy, technocracy, all the kind of enemies of more power to more people in more ways, the people that believe only some people should participate in power. So that's the ultimate line we're trying to draw. I don't want to be overly clever by half on this, though. There are groups in America and sides of dividing lines that are popular in America right now that are more friendly to democracy. So socialists are working on economic democracy. The union movement is working on economic democracy. The good government movement and all the campaign finance reformers are working on opening up government power. The standard progressives are working on securing people to participate in power. If those movements are kind of part of the left or part of the progressive movement, then that's what we're part of. But you know that we want to kind of avoid that language. We might be also in a time where the parties are pretty divided on democracy in their behavior of late. Totally. I welcome on specific policies. I never like talking ill of grassroots Republicans, but I will talk ill of professional Republicans. Occasionally, we have Republican legislators that work on some democracy-related issues. So like antitrust, we just had a public pharma bill idea that we're pushing that has had some Republican support for public production of insulin. There's some good government stuff that you occasionally get on anti-corruption stuff. But the vast majority of things, including on supporting the populations that they claim to support, like democratizing entrepreneurship, We are not getting enough of the Republican Party stepping up in this and putting their money where their mouth is when they say that they want to represent workers, when they say they want to represent the small business startups against the big, when they say they want to represent the people against government bureaucrats. They're hardly ever doing that. I challenge them to kind of live up to some of their rhetoric a bit more. So do you have proposed legislation among the policy kit sort of stuff that you do? 
Yeah. So what we do is we write up these really elaborate policy kits, which is everything you would need to know to champion the policy in your state. It has an introduction. It has detailed explanations of the elements, precedents of where it's been tried before, further reading of the best articles to read, and a bullpen of experts that you could contact if you need to talk to an expert on this issue. And occasionally, if it's useful, in those links, we link out to all the model legislation in precedent states. So if a, a state has already done it, we link out to the legislation that they use to do that because legislators are looking for that. But, you know, it's not just the model legislation that legislators are looking for. They're also kind of looking for the general idea and kind of how to frame it, how to position it. I think people would be really surprised by how understaffed and underfunded state legislators are, let alone city legislators, in terms of kind of having the time and the space to gather all this information on, you know, what's the best housing policy out there? What's the best green energy policy, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious about your thoughts about some of the other groups that I'm aware of in that same sort of mold, though quite different, I think, like on the Republican side, they're ALEC and six, uh, if you're aware of on the Democratic side or progressive side. What do you think of them and how do you distinguish what you do from what else is going on in that kind of arena? Alex, easy to distinguish from. They work for the corporations. They frame themselves as we're just kind of neutral defenders of quote unquote individual liberty. But, you know, they have corporations on their board. They give corporations input on everything. You know, there's even been reporting on, you know, corporations, you know, the amount that you donate resulting in the amount of votes you have in determining what policies are worked on. I've seen some reporting on that. We're just very different from that. They're oftentimes fighting against democracy. We're fighting for democracy. Six is a great organization that does interstate policy work. We have two differences with them. We're more focused on kind of this cutting edge, innovative democracy policy that might not have reached like consensus level in the Democratic Party yet. So they're going to be doing a lot more of these policies that like every Democrat would get on board already. We're willing to go out on a limb much more to do policies that are like new ideas like citizen assemblies or democracy vouchers. We're about to come out with a kid on news vouchers, which is this idea of doing more public funding of news, public pharma, public banks, interesting restorative justice ideas out of New Zealand, things like this, as opposed to kind of stuff that we agree with, like raise the minimum wage or do paid sick leave or something that is a little bit further along in the policy development process. The other thing is we are a very, very open platform, like um, relative to something else. We're not like a nonprofit with closed writers. We are something that we invite anyone who wants to participate with us to write a kit with us. We have editorial standards. We have an ideology. We're not like an open Wikipedia, but we are in some ways like a strange magazine in that we want to have this big network of writers that join with us and kind of have this millennial left spirit of kind of doing this through networks, not just through kind of bureaucratic institutions. Tell me about where you are and what it's taken uh, in terms of building this as an institution. It's not... Uh, it's hard to be a political entrepreneur and start a new organization and get scale, hire, get funding, all of those pieces. What What's your path been like? And yeah, what- this is, you know, it's totally hard. And it's a, it's a two-sided network where we want to have 
you know, the whole goal is to create this flywheel between the readership and the writership. And you have this chicken or the egg at the start, which is like, you want to write for this, but there's no readers yet. It's like any magazine, basically. You want to write for it, but there's no readers yet. And you want to recruit writers, but you can't promise them anything because we got no money and no readers yet. And then you write the first few things by hustling and beg, borrowing and stealing and stuff. Not literally stealing, but begging and borrowing. Then from that, you try to leverage that to get some readers and then you get some readers and then we have a couple of legislators that are paying attention to us. And then I could go back to the writers and say, we got some legislators that are paying attention so that if you write something, it's going to have some influential eyeballs reading it. And then you get to write some more and then you get a few more legislators and then you kind of jump back and forth. And the goal is you get this flywheel going where it starts out as this chicken or the egg problem, but then it becomes like a total virtuous cycle where the more you write, the more you read, the more it's exciting to write for us, the more it's exciting to read with us. And so we're just on that path of trying to get that lift off of kind of hitting that virtuous cycle. Have you built a team? Have you found funding? What's the yeah, so state? we have a we have a team of two full time people, me and my co founder Mike uh, Drashkovich. We have dozens of volunteers and people who are networked with us who have worked on kits. Um, so you know we've gotten some funding to stay afloat. You know to keep Mike and I have this be our full time job for the last few years. Um, we haven't gotten that kind of institutionalization funding. You know, big patron that'll allow us to build the team that we think we need to like fully have liftoff on this, like five to six people. Our hope is that we just keep pushing and one day we can get that. Tell me about your co-founder. He's wonderful. He has this background in media. So he knows a lot about kind of the importance of story and the importance of values and, and vision. Then he worked at the one campaign, which was kind of trying to mix media with politics. And then he came out of the Kennedy School at Harvard, the public policy school. And we've been working on it ever since we met together there and in one of Roberto Unger's classes. So he cares about the vision and has been kind of this amazing creative force of caring about the politics side, but remembering that none of this is going to work unless we have a narrative, unless we have heart, unless we have a beautiful aesthetic to this kind of a creative side of pushing this and, um, and always pushing kind of on the power of this, you know, you went to MIT's business school too, and, you know, pushing on the power of this kind of being thinking like technologists too. The only way this is going to work is if we kind of have web, like technological systems that allow this to, um, to be a network and not just kind of an internal bureaucratic institution. So I recently interviewed Tom Watkowski. Yep. Our star organizer. <laughs> who is working among, well, he's he's like you, I think. He's got a bunch of things going. He's in grad school in both law and policy, and he's doing this LA for vouchers thing. And, and if anyone is interested, that episode is up quite recently. You should listen to it. But, you know, is that the model for the type of person that would come in and write kits for you? Or what's the source of, of the talent is it professors? Is it people, you know, staffers? It's a lot of idealistic 20-somethings, just like the Nader's Raiders back in the 70s. You know, it's a lot of kind of law students, precocious undergraduate students, public policy students, people who are working in other professions, but have a little bit of time that they want to contribute to this. 
And the way we make it work is basically they are the policy organizers, these kind of idealistic warrior nerd volunteers who are democratically spirited and policy minded and excited to work on something. They start their kit making process by reaching out to and interviewing dozens of experts that actually know about the details of the policy. Then they kind of download, digest and organize all the things they're learning from the experts and write them up in these kits what that results in is, you know, not only do we get a kit, not only do we get a kit that's been verified by experts, we also, and this is the most exciting part of this, we also get the organizer themselves becoming a leader and an expert in the policy themselves. And that's what happened with Tom. He started, he's like, I'm kind of interested in this idea called democracy vouchers. That's how it started. I'm kind of interested in this thing. I said, let's go for it. And then it ends with, him writing a book on democracy vouchers, him being this lead national consultant about all these things. It's again, a story of the power of commitment, story of the power of just diving in and doing it. And it's not us that do that. We just kind of give you the guardrails and the guidance. It's them who go through a process that turns them into super citizens. You are a person who also has other projects going, just things I've read, Getaway and a podcast. Tell me about those two things and tell me what else is in your portfolio these days. Yeah. So Getaway was a startup I co-founded with John Staff. John Staff's the kind of the the whole heart and brains and and work behind it. He's still the CEO of it. Um, I'm not working on it on the day-to-day anymore, but still very close to the community there. Um, It's a startup where we place tiny houses in the woods and rent them out by the night for folks who are looking to disconnect and recharge while they're there just a couple hours outside the city. So outside of most major cities in the U.S., there's probably a getaway outpost. You can rent out a tiny house by the night and go there, lock your cell phone away in a cell phone lockbox and kind of have an anti-vacation, which is not something where you do a bunch of things and plan a bunch of things, but just go there and experience kind of the joy of the analog underneath the stars, making a fire, eating s'mores, reconnecting with your family and friends and loved ones. So do do people go there and write? A lot of people go there and write. A lot of people, you know, it's amazing when you make something that's really deep and simple, a lot of people bring different things to it. So some people go there and do writing. Some people go there and jam with their band. Some people go there after someone dies and they grieve there. We've had a lot of people go there after a divorce. We've had people go there after getting married. We have people go there right before they have a kid. We have people bring their kid for their fifth birthday there. It's kind of been amazing. And I think it's because we tapped into a hunger at this time where the digital overload, you know, we wrote a book called How to Get Away that was kind of the manifesto for getaway, which is kind of talking about the three things that it's counterbalancing. So it's counterbalancing this overwork that we have with leisure. It's counterbalancing this over-urbanization that we have with nature. And it's counterbalancing this overconnectedness with disconnection. And I think that's what people get out of it. It's a place to just be instead of do. It's a place to, you know, not not look at Twitter. And it's a place to just kind of see trees, be surrounded by trees and stars for a bit. Yeah, I do like that kind of thing. Um, tell me about your podcast. It didn't seem like it was super active of late. Uh, we have a podcast called Rabbit Hole. It is a uh, part of what I call the Current Affairs Diaspora, which is um, I used to be part of Current Affairs Magazine. Um, and me and another Current Affairs, 
or and our producer who was a current affairser kind of spun off and made one of our series with current affairs which was called is mmt real which was this kind of multi-episode exploration where we interviewed people kind of for and against mmt skeptics and believers and we spun it off and made this thing called rabbit hole which is basically every series we're gonna do a big meaty controversial intellectual subculture and interview people on both sides of it to try to get to the bottom of the thing that they're exploring. Um, And so we've done is MMT real, which explored MMT and finance and monetary theory. We've done is school good, which explores pedagogy and the way to design schools. And we're currently on one called is EA right, which is about effective altruism and whether that's a kind of good belief system or not. Where do you imagine your career going forward? I mean, you have formed your own commitments here, as you have talked about people doing, but do you see big pivots in your future if you can't get Democracy Policy Network to, you know, get that virtuous cycle going? Where do you want to go? Yeah. So in my vocational life, I, I, I have a mission, which is do everything I can to deepen American democracy and solidarity by which I mean, can we expand more power to more people in more ways in any way we can and institutionalize that expansion? And can we get more relationships built between more people in more ways? And can we institutionalize those bridges and bonds between people? That's kind of my task at hand. And I'm of the belief of like the progressive era and Ben Franklin and others that kind of the best way to make change is to mix institutional reform and creation work with writing because you go and do the work in the battlefield of institutional creation and reform where you actually get really kind of intimately connected with a particular thing and do the nuts and bolts of the day-to-day labor of doing that. And then the writing allows you to evangelize your learnings. And so that's what I'm going to try to do. So kind of weave back and forth in parallel. I guess not weave back and forth in parallel. Try to write a lot about what I'm learning and uh, thinking, well, working on it. And, you know, this is very tied to what I believe is kind of the central, one could call epistemology of democracy, which is capital P pragmatism, not pragmatic as in moderate, but pragmatic as in a mix of experience experience and action with thinking and ideating. I think it was William James or someone called it the two legs of thought and action. And so that's what I'm hoping to do. Well, it's all sounds interesting. And I, I, I'm definitely going to follow what you're up to next. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? Um, no, I, you know, I, I'd love to, um, I'd love, you know, I, I, I think we covered a lot. So, <laughs> well, um, what is it you're trying to say you'd love to? Yeah, I'd love to just hear more about uh, which of this you know you're interested in and why you wanted to reach out. And, um, well, you what know, what you've been uh, thinking about too. What, what I would like is maybe take a walk in Rock Creek Park or sometime and chat yes. at, at our leisure if you're willing. That'd we're, be wonderful. We're, we're basically neighbors. And, but, you know, my interest is, is in, improving this democracy from a different angle, I think, but from a compatible point of view. And I'm interested in the people who are at, in that work. And so uh, I'm, I get excited when I talk to somebody who 
you know, has made that kind of commitment and is is working in some area of it because it's a huge country and I keep discovering so much all over the place. So it's a privilege to talk to you and I, and to so great talking like with you, you too. And yeah. I love the spirit of this podcast. Well, thank you for that. Thank um, you. Any, anything else you want to say? No, that's it. Thank you. That was Pete Davis. Pete is at democracypolicy.network. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.